Again, that's Romans 8, 28 through 30. Uh, we're just going to focus on verse 28 this week, verse 29 next week, and verse 30 the following week. Um, as I was preparing for this, I, I realized how jam-packed these three verses were. And I also remembered what I told the search committee five years ago. I said, I can preach in 20 minutes. But if I did all three of these, I could do it in 60. So, seeing, seeing that and understanding and being respectful of everyone's time, not wanting to leave out any important parts of God's word, we're going to divide these three up into three weeks. 28 this week, 29 next week, and 30 the week after. But let us turn now and hear the word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us go to him in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we... We started in Romans 8 a, a while back uh, because I, I believe it was a message we needed to hear in the midst of this pandemic and the shutdown and layoffs and not knowing up, down, left, right, forward, backwards. It's all different than it was seven months ago. And what Paul does in Romans 8, what we call chapter 8, Paul in his letter to the Romans begins telling them exactly what the benefits are of the gospel, and one of them being the Holy Spirit and all the benefits that come with the Spirit of, of the power of the dwelling, living permanently in us, being with us, being able to put sin to death. And, and throughout this chapter, Paul aims to continually encourage and comfort believers, Right? He, he begins in that, in that first verse by reminding us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And every word he has penned since for believers has been encouraging and comforting, especially in the midst of suffering and pain and hardships. Because pa Paul knew what we knew. Life is hard painful. It's difficult. In fact, it was Paul who would write it in scripture. He says, to die is gain, but to live is Christ. What Paul says when he writes that is he's saying dying is better because then all the pain and suffering is gone away and he will be in the arms of his father, the presence of his father forevermore. And living is Christ which means it's suffering. Life is hard. 
In fact, it doesn't take us much time here on this earth to realize that we don't always get what we want. But it takes us a lot longer to realize that that's okay. I mean, we look at toddlers, right? You start telling them no as a parent, they've got tactics to get you to say yes, don't they? They keep asking. That's one, pestering. Another one is they get loud and they scream and they yell. Another one is they cry. Maybe we'll feel bad for them. Another one is that they scream and cry at the same time while also not moving their body from its position and suddenly weighing five times as much as they did five minutes before. And then it's doing all of that while laying on the ground, kicking and screaming. Some of us have grown out of that. Some of us, me included, not necessarily all the time. It's because life is hard and we think it would be easier if it went our way every time. But it's a scientific fact uh, uh, that the world doesn't revolve around us doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. Because the truth of the matter is, if it did, then we would be God. And we're not. And so as Paul writes this, he writes that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we can hold fast to the hope and the promise that's written here. In verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And this promise God has been faithful to and brings us comfort. This promise allows us to say with confidence, That this too, we don't know how. We We don't know how. If you want to ask me, how is God going to use this terrible pandemic for good? I don't know. But I know he promises to do so. And that's what we hold on to. That's what we hold on to in the midst of pain and suffering in the midst of evil and terrible things. And that's why Paul gives it to us. That's why God gives it to us in his word. And when we dive into this and we begin looking at it, Paul is very intentional in the words he uses. He always is. And so he lays on there and says that there's actually two requirements for all things to work for good. One, that you love God. And two, that you are called according to his purpose. Paul was intentional. He didn't only write one of them, but both of them are there together. He lays it out. He says, if you don't love God, you can't claim this promise. It's not yours to hold on to. In fact, if you don't love God and you haven't been called according to his purpose, optimism is not for you. Earlier in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, 
It's written, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul writes, it's for those who love God. Now that's an easy sermon to preach, is to love God and, and, and give five steps. How do we love God best? But what exactly does it mean when Paul writes to love God? I mean, he gave Moses the commandment. It's the first one, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, body, and soul. Jesus confirms this when asked, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, body, and soul. To love God. John, the apostle, when he writes, he, he says that you don't have love if you only love those who love you. For even non-believers do that. And so we learn that loving our enemies is part of loving God. And suddenly love becomes pretty hard. And then love for God, for those who love God. Jesus explains a bit what it looks like. He, he tells us the parable of the lost son. We know it maybe as the parable of the prodigal son. Both the younger and the elder son, well, they love the things of the father but not the father. They just have different ways to go and get it. The younger one goes straight to his father and says, essentially, I wish you were dead. Give me my things now. And he takes off and is given over to the desires of his belly and sins, but then comes back with a penitent heart and, and his father restores him and doesn't punish him. Well, this sets off the elder son, doesn't it? Suddenly there's a party and a fattened calf is killed and the elder son's out in the field pouting. The father comes out and says, why are you out here? And he says, you never threw me a party. I have followed every one of your rules. I have been here when he wished you were dead. I have been here and have not spent what you told me not to spend. I have followed your rules to a T and you never threw a party for me and my friends. You see, both the younger and the older brother, they just wanted the things of the father, not the father himself. See, loving God is desiring and treasuring God beyond gifts and blessings. Loving God is beyond gratitude for gifts and blessings and promises. Folks, the most satisfying treasure in all the universe is our Father who is in heaven, our creator. He's the treasure. The relationship with our Father is the treasure. It's him. Loving God is a desire to look at. And behold, and be with, and seek after, over, above, 
and before all else. We know this. That when we put other things in the place of God, we turn our attention to other activities or other things or other people, and we begin to make little G-gods out of them. We don't necessarily understand that we have fallen into idolatry, but we have replaced God with something we love more. And sometimes that's really hard for us to admit. loving God. For those who love God, he says. And it's for those who are called according to his purpose. Now this calling that Paul speaks of is an objective, solid work of God. And our love for God is, is an effect of our calling by God. Right? The scripture even says we love because he first loved us. The calling came first. But while we were yet sinners, while we were rebelling against God, turning our backs against him, sinning against God, Christ died for us, proving God's love for us. So Paul puts these two things in there. One, that this loving God that, that we can understand what it is, but then there's this calling from God and how we fully understand it. In Scripture, we're told that, that God calls a person to Christ by bringing them to the gospel of Jesus. By hearing the proclamation that we are sinners in need of a Savior and Jesus is that Savior. That we couldn't save ourselves and be perfect on our own. And so God in his infinite love for us sent his son to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we so deserved. We celebrate this gospel. It's this gospel that rescued us in the darkest and deepest times of our lives. And it's upon hearing that gospel that we see in Scripture and we have seen in our lives and the lives of others that the only way it can be described is that God's Spirit then pierces hearts and makes dead people alive. Call it being born again. So for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Paul writes, all Things work together for good. Paul's intentional with these words. He's not flippant. He said all things, good things, joyous things, wonderful things, bad things, painful things, awful things, and even evil things. For after these three verses, in verse 31, Paul asks two questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we rest in this promise. That all things from the best, most awesome to the worst, most evil and painful things will work 
together for good. And it sounds like maybe it's a nice thing to see, but there's evidence in Scripture that this is exactly God's character. Many places we can turn, but we can look at Joseph, son of Jacob. All his brothers hated him because Jacob loved Joseph and gave him a special coat. So they beat him up and threw him in a pit. How is this going to work for Joseph's good? How does that work for good at all? And then instead of killing him, they sell him off to be a slave in Egypt. Joseph wondering, how is this any good? How is this any better? Questions we ask when we're in the midst of suffering and pain. And then when Joseph gets to Egypt, then he's accused of rape and thrown in jail. Again, wondering, where's the good in this? What did I do wrong? Is there anything I did to deserve this? He meets Pharaoh's butler and, and thinks he striked up this relationship and possibly a way out. And then suddenly the butler forgets about Joseph for two years. Where is the good? And then one day, Joseph's able to interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams. Then he interprets more dreams and dreams about famine and how to store up food for its coming. Joseph suddenly falls into favor of Pharaoh and essentially becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And when famine strikes all of the region, suddenly Joseph's family and all of his people from Israel come to Egypt because they have the food. After Joseph's dad passed away, and they realized that it was Joseph there who saved them. They're scared. They're wondering if he'll even be able to forgive them. And in Genesis 50, 20, we're told this. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are Today, that's an incredibly mature perspective from Joseph. One that we never gain until we see God's purposes fulfilled. It's what makes suffering so hard, isn't it? In the midst of those hard things and life being hard, we don't understand God's purpose through it. And I'm not sure that if Joseph knew that he would be able to save his, his brothers from a famine, if it meant him being thrown in a pit, sold in slavery, thrown in jail, forgotten about, I don't know if he would have signed up for it at the beginning. I don't know if I would have signed up for it. There was one in Scripture who knew God's plan. Jesus. Son of God. He was perfect and sinless. Enjoyed his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. But he knew God's plan for salvation. And he submitted himself to it. And so we know that in Scripture, Jesus foretells of his death and his resurrection. 
disciples don't get it. On that last supper, as they're eating, Jesus dismisses Judas to go and do what he must do. For Jesus knows there's a plot to kill him. There's evil plans by Herod, Pilate, Judas, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and then the crowd on the day of his crucifixion shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They meant evil upon Jesus. They didn't know by doing so that he would bring salvation to people. But God did. So did Jesus. So God used their evil for good. For our ultimate good. For it was there in their plot to kill him. The man who knew no sin took on all of our sin and shed his blood as an atonement so that we would be made right with our good, good Father. And three days later, he was resurrected. You know, Paul doesn't mince words in Scripture. He tells us we will suffer told us just a few verses ago that we will suffer with Christ because of Christ. He tells us that our future glory far outweighs our present sufferings. Paul was on to something. But he also knew that we could look to that future glory. We also don't understand why we suffer now. And so he clears it up for us. For those who are in Christ, those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. Even this thing. Amen.